Welcome to the 3ABN Australia Radio Book Reading Program. The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen White, is an inspirational account of the life and ministry of Jesus. What you are about to hear is a dramatized audio version of this book, created by Nancy Hamilton Myers. To download your free copy, visit thedesireofagesproject.com. Listen now as Nancy continues to read from The Desire of Ages. The Desire of Ages, Chapter 59, Priestly Plottings. Bethany was so near Jerusalem that the news of the raising of Lazarus was soon carried to the city. Through spies who had witnessed the miracle, the Jewish rulers were speedily in possession of the facts. A meeting of the Sanhedrin was at once called to decide as to what should be done. Christ had now fully made manifest his control of death and the grave. That mighty miracle was the crowning evidence offered by God to men that he had sent his Son into the world for their salvation. It was a demonstration of divine power sufficient to convince every mind that was under the control of reason and enlightened conscience. Many who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus were led to believe on Jesus, but the hatred of the priests against him was intensified. They had rejected all lesser evidence of his divinity, and they were only enraged at this new miracle. The dead had been raised in the full light of day, and before a crowd of witnesses, no artifice could explain away such evidence. For this very reason, the enmity of the priests grew deadlier. They were more than ever determined to put a stop to Christ's work. The Sadducees, though not favorable to Christ, had not been so full of malignity toward him as were the Pharisees. Their hatred had not been so bitter, but they were now thoroughly alarmed. They did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. Producing so-called science, they had reasoned that it would be an impossibility for a dead body to be brought to life. But by a few words from Christ, their theory had been overthrown. They were shown to be ignorant, both of the scriptures and of the power of God. They could see no possibility of removing the impression made on the people by the miracle. How could men be turned away from him who had prevailed to rob the grave of its dead? Lying reports were put in circulation, but the miracle could not be denied. And how to contradict its effect, they knew not. Thus far, the Sadducees had not encouraged the plan of putting Christ to death. But after the resurrection of Lazarus, they decided that only by his death could his fearless denunciations against them be stopped. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and they could not but see that this miracle was an evidence that the Messiah was among them. But they had ever opposed Christ's work. From the first they had hated him because he had exposed their hypocritical pretensions. He had torn aside the cloak of rigorous rites under which their moral deformity was hidden. The pure religion that he taught 
had condemned their hallow professions of piety, they thirsted to be revenged upon him for his pointed rebukes. They had tried to provoke him to say or to do something that would give them occasion to condemn him. Several times they had attempted to stone him, but he had quietly withdrawn and they had lost sight of him. The miracles he performed on the Sabbath were all for the relief of the afflicted, but the Pharisees had sought to condemn him as a Sabbath breaker. They had tried to arouse the Herodians against him. They represented that he was seeking to set up a rival kingdom and consulted with them how to destroy him. To excite the Romans against him, they had represented him as trying to subvert their authority. They had tried every pretext to cut him off from influencing the people. But so far their attempts had been foiled. The multitudes who witnessed his works of mercy and heard his pure and holy teachings knew these were not the deeds and words of a Sabbath breaker or a blasphemer. Even the officers sent by the Pharisees had been so influenced by his words that they could not lay hands on him. In desperation, the Jews had finally passed an edict that any man who professed faith in Jesus should be cast out of the synagogue. So, as the priests, the rulers, and the elders gathered for consultation, it was their fixed determination to silence him who did such marvelous works that all men wondered. Pharisees and Sadducees were more nearly united than ever before, divided hitherto. They became one in their opposition to Christ. Nicodemus and Joseph had, in former councils, prevented the condemnation of Jesus, and for this reason they were not now summoned. There were present at the council other influential men who believed on Jesus, but their influence prevailed nothing against that of the malignant Pharisees. Yet the members of the council were not all agreed. The Sanhedrin was not at this time a legal assembly. It existed only by tolerance. Some of its number questioned the wisdom of putting Christ to death. They feared that this would excite an insurrection among the people, causing the Romans to withhold further favors from the priesthood and to take from them the power they still held. The Sadducees were united in their hatred of Christ, yet they were inclined to be cautious in their movements, fearing that the Romans would deprive them of their high standing. In this council, assembled to plan the death of Christ, the witness was present who heard the boastful words of Nebuchadnezzar, who witnessed the idolatrous feast of Belshazzar, who was present when Christ in Nazareth announced himself the Anointed One. This witness was now impressing the rulers with the work they were doing. Events in the life of Christ rose up before them with a distinctness that alarmed them. They remembered the scene in the temple when Jesus, then a child of twelve, stood before the learned doctors of the law, asking them questions at which they wondered. The miracle just performed bore witness that Jesus was none other than the Son of God. 
in their true significance. The Old Testament scriptures regarding Christ flashed before their minds. Perplexed and troubled, the rulers asked, What do we? There was a division in the council. Under the impression of the Holy Spirit, the priests and rulers could not banish the conviction that they were fighting against God. While the council was at the height of its perplexity, Caiaphas, the high priest, arose. Caiaphas was a proud and cruel man, overbearing and intolerant. Among his family connections were Sadducees, proud, bold, reckless, full of ambition and cruelty, which they hid under a cloak of pretended righteousness. Caiaphas had studied the prophecies, and although ignorant of their true meaning, he spoke with great authority and assurance. Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. Even if Jesus were innocent, urged the high priest, he must be put out of the way. He was troublesome drawing the people to himself and lessening the authority of the rulers. He was only one. It was better that he should die than that the whole authority of the rulers should be weakened. If the people were to lose confidence in their rulers, the national power would be destroyed. Caiaphas urged that after this miracle, the followers of Jesus would likely rise in revolt. The Romans will then come, he said and will close our temple and abolish our laws, destroying us as a nation. What is the life of this Galilean worth in comparison with the life of the nation? If he stands in the way of Israel's well-being, is it not doing God a service to remove him? Better that one man perish than that the whole nation be destroyed. In declaring that one man should die for the nation, Caiaphas indicated that he had some knowledge of the prophecies, although it was very limited. But John, in his account of this scene, takes up the prophecy and shows its broad and deep significance. He says, And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. How blindly did the haughty Caiaphas acknowledge the Saviour's mission? On the lips of Caiaphas, this most precious truth was turned into a lie. The policy he advocated was based on a principle borrowed from heathenism. Among the heathen, the dim consciousness that one was to die for the human race had led to the offering of human sacrifices. So Caiaphas proposed, by the sacrifice of Jesus to save the guilty nation, not from transgression, but in transgression, that they might continue in sin. And by his reasoning, he thought to silence the remonstrances of those who might dare to say that as yet nothing worthy of death had been found in Jesus. At this council, Christ's enemies had been deeply convicted. The Holy Spirit had impressed their minds, but Satan strove to gain control of them. 
he urged upon their notice the grievances they had suffered on account of Christ, how little he had honoured their righteousness. He presented a righteousness far greater, which all who would be children of God must possess. Taking no notice of their forms and ceremonies, he had encouraged sinners to go directly to God as a merciful father and make known their wants. Thus, in their opinion, he had set aside the priesthood. He had refused to acknowledge the theology of the rabbinical schools. He had exposed the evil practices of the priests and had irreparably hurt their influence. He had injured the effects of their maxims and traditions, declaring that though they strictly enforced the ritual law, they made void the law of God. All this Satan now brought to their minds. Satan told them that in order to maintain their authority, they must put Jesus to death. This counsel they followed. The fact that they might lose the power they had then exercised was, they thought, sufficient reason for coming to some decision. With the exception of a few who dared not speak their minds, the Sanhedrin received the words of Caiaphas as the words of God. Relief came to the council. The discord ceased. They resolved to put Christ to death at the first favorable opportunity. In rejecting the proof of the divinity of Jesus, these priests and rulers had locked themselves in impenetrable darkness. They had come wholly under the sway of Satan to be hurried by him over the brink of eternal ruin. Yet such was their deception that they were well pleased with themselves. The Sanhedrin feared, however, to take rash measures against Jesus, lest the people should become incensed and the violence mediated toward him should fall upon themselves. On this account, the council delayed to execute the sentence they had pronounced. The Savior understood the plotting of the priests. He knew that they longed to remove him and that their purpose would soon be accomplished. But it was not his place to hasten the crisis, and he withdrew from that region, taking the disciples with him. Thus, by his own example, Jesus again enforced the instruction he had given to the disciples. When they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. There was a wide field in which to work for the salvation of souls, and unless loyalty to him required it, the Lord's servants were not to imperil their lives. Jesus had now given three years of public labor to the world. His example of self-denial and disinterested benevolence was before them. His life of purity, of suffering and devotion was known to all. Yet this short period of three years was as long as the world could endure the presence of its Redeemer. His life had been one of persecution and insult, driven from Bethlehem by a jealous king, rejected by his own people at Nazareth, condemned to death without a cause at Jerusalem, 
Jesus, with his few faithful followers, found a temporary asylum in a strange city. He who was ever touched by human woe, who healed the sick, restored sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf and speech to the dumb, who fed the hungry and comforted the sorrowful, was driven from the people he had labored to save. He who walked upon the heaving billows and by a word silenced their angry roaring, who cast out devils that in departing acknowledged him to be the Son of God, who broke the slumbers of the dead, who held thousands entranced by his words of wisdom, was unable to reach the hearts of those who were blinded by prejudice and hatred and who stubbornly rejected the light. Join us next time as Nancy Hamilton Myers continues her dramatised audiobook, The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen G. White. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.